if I had never joined a church until I had found one that was perfect, I should have never joined one at all. And the moment that I did join it, if I had actually found one, I would have spoiled it. For it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, the church, the local church, is the dearest place on earth to us. Charles Spurgeon. The local church matters. I don't, I don't know if many of you know that. The local church matters. In a few months, probably, hopefully in this calendar year, we'll get to Acts chapter 20, where we hear the Apostle Paul speak of the church as the body of Christ himself, purchased with his own blood. The body of Christ himself, the the local church, purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ himself. And I think the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, had the capacity to make such a statement because in a week or two, when we read of his story, we'll see that as he was confronted by the risen Christ himself on his way to torment, persecute, and destroy a local church in the city of Damascus, he's confronted with the risen Jesus and what does the risen and resurrected Jesus have to say to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Not that church, not those Christians, not those people who disagree with you. Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus identifies himself with his people. The local church matters. It matters a great deal to God. It matters a great deal to God. And it matters a great deal to us. The problem is for Many of us today, we have a, such a low view of the local church that we can't even find it represented in the pages of Scripture. We have a view of the local church that's so low, it's no longer even consistent with Scripture. The local church matters to Jesus, and it matters dearly to us. So on January 29th, we are going to have uh, what we affectionately have no title for, but we'll call our membership class because the local church matters and membership matters. Committing yourself to a local body of believers to live out the gospel realities of transformation and sanctification and to continue God's mission of expanding the impact of the gospel from not only this place in Jerusalem where we've started in Acts, but to the ends of the earth. It It matters. And on January 29th, we're going to have a membership class where we're going to explain who Redemption Hill is, why the local church matters to us, why it matters scripturally to God, and and how we as a local church seek to live together and embody the realities of the gospel that we so deeply proclaim. So if you're interested in knowing more about Redemption Hill and why the local church matters to us so much, uh, I'd invite you to sign up for that class. It's a Saturday, the 29th. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's going to go from, I think, 9 a.m. To, to noon. Is that right? 9 a.m. to noon. Uh, and, he, and here's the particular detail. We've only got room for 16 more people. So if you are interested in learning more, uh, being in the class, listen, to does not obligate you. Uh, it's a chance for you to learn more about why we believe this way and why we do what we do. 
so if you're interested in that, we've only got room for 16 more. If you'd RSVP to us, and I think the RSV info is on your bulletin, uh, we would appreciate it. Uh, but we're going to be doing these more often. Uh, so if you're not one of the first 16 uh, that can grab these last few spaces, uh, we will have more opportunities. Um, so the local church matters to Jesus. It, it matters to him, and it matters to us. And like Spurgeon, we actually believe that it's the dearest place on earth to us. Um, the local church, and I want to say this because it will help us as we get into our <clears throat> text this morning. The local church matters. It's important because the local church is God's chosen instrument through which he has purposed himself to accomplish his mission of bearing witness to the sufficiency and glory and power and worth of his son, Jesus Christ. The local church matters because it's God's chosen instrument to reflect his greatness and glory to his creation so that through the life of the local church, through the witness of the life of the local church, the glory of God will be made known to his creation, but not just limited here. It's a cosmic reality that the glory of God will be known through the life of the local church, not just to the people around them and to creation, but to powers and principalities in the heavenlies. The local church matters to God. It's his intended instrument for reflecting his glory and continuing his mission to reflect the sufficiency and the glory of his son Jesus to his creation. The local church matters to God. Now, if you've got your Bibles, open them up to Acts chapter 6. In the book of Acts that we have been studying for the last few months and that we'll continue studying, I guess until we finish it, um, I won't give you a timeline. In the book of Acts, what we see is the record of Jesus declaring this intended purpose and this intended strategy to use his people, the church, to accomplish his mission of expanding the reach of his gospel and his transformation from the place where he started with him in Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth. And you see that in, in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus declares to his disciples after he had risen from the grave and reappeared to them for a period of 40 days, where he began to show them all that he had taught them and connected for them all that they had misunderstood and understood in the scriptures and how it all pointed to him. And he, he showed them his glory such to the degree that they should have no question as to who he was. And in those 40 days, they looked at him and said, now what are you going to do? And here's what he said in Acts chapter 1.8. He said, I'm going to empower you. I know you think I should do something. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's my intended strategy. I'm going to empower you to be my witnesses. You're going to be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, then in Judea, Samaria, all the way to the ends of the earth. And we see that in Acts chapter 1.8. God declaring this intended strategy, this centrality and this purposefulness to the life of the local church, why it matters so much. He declares this strategy, and as we carried on in the book of Acts early on, we see in the very next chapter, in Acts chapter 2, he begins to fulfill the promises that he made, and we see him sending to his people his promised Holy Spirit to empower them and transform them. We looked at that, and we began to understand that, and we see Jesus beginning to continue to fulfill the promises that he had made to his people. And we see then that through these people in Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4, as God begins to empower them and transform them by his Holy Spirit, they begin to do the very thing that he had told them that he had purpose for them to do is they begin to bear witness to the glory of the risen Jesus. Not only through their words, but through their lives. The way that they lived began to proclaim to the watching world around them 
the grandeur and the glory and the majesty and the sufficiency and the joy and the satisfaction of this person, Jesus. They began to live and embody the message of what we call the gospel. We see that in Acts chapter 2, 3, and 4. And in that process, as they begin to bear witness as Jesus had promised they would, empowered by his spirit, we see the church, that early church, going from the gathering of his disciples, some 120 probably, to now upwards in a few months, what would span probably just a couple of months from the time that Jesus was crucified to the time as Luke was, was, was recording this history. A couple of months transpired in the life of this local church and they've gone from 120 to upwards of 10,000. As God began to fulfill his promise to his people to continue his purpose and his mission through his people, through the local church. And we see these people go from 120 through God's empowered spirit to some 10,000. And what we've done as we've looked through these chapters is we've continually pointed back to God fulfilling his promise to not only empower his people, but to use his people as his intended instrument to reaching the nations. As we've constantly kind of reminded ourselves of that, what we've seen and that that Luke, the man who wrote the book of Acts, has done for us as he's not just recorded for us what God did through his people, as great as that is. As great as it is to see the numbers saved and the city saved and the church grow and all those things happen, the thing that Luke has shown us and we've stopped to, to take a look at it is he's given us these little slices of life in this local church. He's, he's been, if you imagine, this is how I do it, maybe this confuses you, but it's like watching as I read the Bible, it's like watching it play out in front of me. I mean, I try to read the Bible and I see it almost as if I was there and I try to get my mind to to play this story out and I'm trying to see what they see and smell what they smell and and put myself as close as I can there. And and it's like watching the movie of this early church being played out and Luke consistently just hits the pause button. And then he just slow frames it through a scene that we can see something. We don't get caught up in the whole thing, but he shows us something. In these early chapters, he's given us these little glimpses. He slowed the story down. And he's shown us not just what God has done through this people that he intended to use to expand the gospel to the ends of the earth. But he's shown us what he's done more importantly in these people. To transform them into the people that he can use to accomplish his mission. To fulfill his purposes. And this is where we begin to slow down and, and settle in for the last few weeks. We've seen starting in Acts chapter 3 and in Acts chapter 4 that as they began to bear witness to the glory of, of the risen Jesus and numbers were added, we began to see that in this local church, it wasn't just what God was doing through them that was so important, but what he did in them that made them the kind of people that he could use. We've seen that all of them together, from the 120 to the 10,000 plus, all together believed with all that they were in the sufficiency of who God was for them in Jesus. Acts chapter 3. Altogether, they had believed the sufficiency of God for them in Jesus. They had been a gospel-centered people. The gospel, gospel had captured their hearts, and the gospel on a daily basis was digging its roots deeper into the soil of their souls. The gospel was doing its work through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to cultivate the soul of this early church. And what we saw in those two chapters through these little stories that Luke would show us is that as the gospel roots went deeper into the soul of this church, fruit of the gospel began to, began to blossom up in their life. And it was this fruit coming from these gospel roots that was empowering these people through the Holy Spirit to go and be the church that he was calling them to be in the city. We saw the gospel had produced in these people a radical fellowship, a, a radical unity, an ability to relate to one another, to serve one another, to love one another, to live with one another that couldn't be replicated anywhere else on earth. Any other institution that man had created 
And there were plenty of them in this time. Any other institution that man had created could not replicate the type of fellowship and unity that was being seen in this early church. And that was a fruit of the gospel roots going deep into their soul. There was this unexplainable unity. And in that unexplainable unity came this unbelievably sacrificial generosity. People were getting free from the love of stuff and the sense of need for stuff. There was a freedom from being identified by the things that they owned. And that came from the gospel taking root in their soul. And what happened is that they were so free of those things and being defined by those things and needing those things that they were able to sacrificially meet the needs of the rest of the people in the church as any of them had them. I mean, there was a generosity that was born out of the grace of God that couldn't be replicated anywhere else in any type of man-made human society. And it was confounding the people around them. There was this unbelievable unity, this sacrificial generosity, and in that, they had an unparalleled effectiveness in, in witness in being who God was calling them to be, from 120 to 10,000 in a matter of months. There was an effectiveness to their life. There was an effectiveness to the word they spoke. There was an effectiveness to the faith that they proclaimed. All of these things were fruit that come from the gospel digging deeper and deeper into the soil of their souls. And beyond that, as we got into chapter 4, we began to see that this fruit continued to just expand. There came in the lives of this early church from the gospel taking root an unbelievably radical obedience that was obedient to the will and to the word of God regardless of the circumstances that they faced. Circumstances didn't dictate dictate their willingness to obey. Circumstances didn't color the capacity to which they were willing to obey the will and the word of God. They They were obedient to the will of God regardless of what they were facing. And even as they face difficult circumstances, and Luke has used circumstance, difficult circumstances to show us these things in early on in Acts, even as they face difficult circumstances, even persecution for some of them, the gospel deep into their soul, day in and day out, cultivating the soil of their soul, produced in them a radical joy in the face of such difficulty and, and, and sacrifice. This is what Luke slows the frame down to show us. Oftentimes we get sidetracked and enamored by what God did through these people. Praise God for what he did through these people. But it was what he was doing in them, in the cultivating of their soul, through the presence of the Holy Spirit and the work of the gospel that produced in their lives the fruit that made it possible for him to use them in such a way to be so effective. This is what Luke has been showing us. And as we've looked at these things and challenged ourselves with these things, we began to ask What's going to be said of us when it's all said and done? I mean, when history looks back at the history of Redemption Hill Church, when it's all said and done and the autopsies are being done and history is coming to an end, what's what's going to be said of us? What's going to be characteristic of us? What roots are cultivating the soil of the soul of this church and these people? And what fruit's being produced? What's it going to say of of us? Of this people, early on, this early local church, what we saw, what they were accused of, and what history records them as, is that they were a people who had filled the city with the teaching of the gospel. In a matter of months, they could be accused of having filled the city with the teaching of the gospel. And as Ray said last week, The word of God through these people was continuing to increase and the number of disciples continued to multiply greatly in Jerusalem and a great many priests 
those most obstinate to the faith, a great many priests became obedient to the faith. See, the local church matters to God. The local church matters to God for the ongoing accomplishment of his mission, to redeem his creation from the brokenness of sin. We've been asking, what's it going to say of us then? What's being produced in us? You see, the book of Acts in, in total records only a slice of about 30 years in the life of the early church. So far in these six chapters, we've seen a couple of months. The book itself is only going to take about 30 years. And as I thought about it, as we started this series and, and looking at what God is cultivating in these people and looking at, at us and thinking about the future, the reality of it is, for the most of us in this room, 30 to 40 years is what we've got to look at when we think about what's going to be said of us and what's going to be said of what we produce and how God uses us in the life of this local church. We've got about 30 or 40 good years left in us for most of us. In about 30 or 40 years, the average age of this church right now, especially when the college students are still on vacation, but the average age of this church right now is right around 31 years old. We've got about 30 or 40 good years left in us before, by God's grace, we hand this thing off to another generation to continue to run. We've got 30 or 40 years to take a look at what we put our hands to and why we do it and then think what will be said of us when it's all said and done. And when you think about looking at your life and your involvement and what God is calling you to do in those terms, you've got to look at the things you prioritize and the things you find important and the things you're willing to give yourself to for such a short period of time. That's what we've got, 30 years. This is our 30 years sitting in this room. What's going to be said of us? What's the accusation that could be leveled against us? Are we part of something that was able to be used by God that we could be accused in such a way of having filled this city with the teaching of the gospel? What's going to be said of us? What's our 30 years going to be defined by? The book of Acts has given us glimpses, not just into what God can do and did do through people, but more importantly, what he's doing in people and cultivating their soul to produce this type of fruit. And so this morning in Acts chapter 6, we're going to pick up in verse 8, and we are going to take a big, giant step by God's grace in the text. And we're going to pray in a second because we're going to need him if that's going to be accomplished. But in our text this morning, we're going to get another glimpse. Luke's going to slow the frames down a little bit, and we're going to get a cameo appearance by one of the most important men in the entire book of Acts. Seldom remembered, Seldom venerated and glorified, but one of the most important men in the entire book of Acts. A man on whose life, ministry, and death the story of the book of Acts turns. A man in whom the expansion of the gospel from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, on which the hinges of that swing in his life, in his death. Luke's going to slow it down and give us a look at this man, Stephen. And we're going to pray because we're going to need God to help us get through this to see what he has to say to us this morning. Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather together, to open up your word, to read your word, but more importantly, Lord, to be read by your word. Lord, I ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, do what only you can do, and you take your words, your living and breathing words, your scriptures. Lord, and you allow them to expose in our hearts 
what needs to be exposed, that you use your scriptures in a way that can divide thought and intention. I can get down to what it is you're trying to deal with us in this morning. So Lord, we ask that you come and you use the time that we have together to glorify yourself in our hearts and in our minds and most importantly in our souls. That we would be a people who, Lord, the gospel would be taking deep root in. That we'd be a people whose souls are being cultivated by your gospel. Lord, who by your grace would be bearing the fruit that we see being born in the life of this early local church. We ask this, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You got your Bibles. Acts chapter 6. We'll start in verse 8. I'm going to read, talk, read, talk. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, Stephen should be familiar. The name should be familiar to you. It may have been a couple of weeks. Ray mentioned him last week, but a couple of weeks ago, before the snow, we, we talked a little bit about Stephen, but just a few verses back, and we won't take too much time to go there, a conflict had arisen in the life of this early local church. A conflict between the, the care of the widows that had come into the church. As the church had grown from 120 to some 10,000 and people had come, they were assuming the care of the widows from both the Hellenistic Jewish background, from those who weren't part of the, the heritage of Israel, uh, to those who were part of the heritage of Israel, who have come to know Jesus, who are now a part of the church. And the church was responsible and took on the responsibility for caring for these widows who, who didn't have anyone else to care for them. And in the caring for those widows, as it became overwhelming because of the numbers, because of the work of the gospel in the life of these people, conflict arose. And if you haven't heard it, go back and listen to Ray's message last week, because he did an amazing job of helping us remember that so often the conflict and the complaints that arise in our hearts, especially when they pertain to the life of the local church, often arise because of the work of God's grace in the life of the local church. And we miss it sometimes as our struggles and our complaints and our frustrations begin to overwhelm our, our perspective of what's going on. But the gospel was bearing great fruit in the life of this church. Some 10,000 people had come to know Jesus and because of the logistics of caring for the widows and, and some struggles of people still going through the process of sanctification, a complaint had arisen. And the apostles, being brought into this process, looked at the people. If you remember what Ray said and we studied the last couple of weeks, said, look, it would not be right for us to leave what God has called us to do, to devote ourselves to the devoting ourselves to the preaching of the word and prayer to come and take care of, of meeting these needs. Here's what you need to do. You guys, local church, need to set apart seven men full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit to lead you in meeting this need. Not to go and meet the need themselves, but to lead you in going to meet this need. And the congregation loves the idea. And through prayer, I, I, I don't know, I assume prayer and observation of the life of those around them. They came up with seven men, and the first one named in Acts chapter 6 is Stephen. And Luke gives a little addendum to Stephen. He, he wasn't just a man full of the Spirit and wisdom, which was the criteria. He was a man full of the Spirit and, and faith, full of faith in the Holy Spirit. So there's Stephen, and now Luke's going to pick the story up and slow it down, and we're going to see this man Stephen. A little bit of his ministry, a little bit of what was going on, and what it ultimately cost him. But how God was able to use that for the continued purpose of his glory. Not only in Jerusalem, but now to the ends of the earth. So our text this morning is going to be Acts 6, 8, all the way through chapter 8, verse 1. 
We're going to need, need God's grace to do that. But what I'm going to do, if you got your Bibles, I'm going to read you the bookends of the passage. I'm going to read you the beginning, and I'm going to read you the end. And we'll get to the middle in just a little while. Does that make sense? I want you to catch it, all right? So Acts chapter 6, verse 8, we're starting with Stephen. Stephen, full of grace and power. So wisdom, Holy Spirit, faith, Luke's just going to keep going. Full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. But then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those from Sicilia and Asia, they rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him. And they brought him before the council. And they set up a false witness who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, are these things so? Now, go to chapter 7, verse 54. They're awaiting Stephen's answer, and he's going to answer them. And after he answers them, here's what happens. Now, when they had heard these things, Stephen's answer, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Make note of that name. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. All right, so here's what's happening. In the story of Acts, as Luke is showing us spots of this local church, and most importantly, what God is doing in them to produce such great fruit in them, to produce such great effectiveness in the city. He's done it through kind of a trilogy of persecutions. If you've been here, you remember. He shows us this first persecution that rose up against the church, and, and two of the apostles were taken into prison, but at the end of it, all they were doing was warned not to preach again, remember? The scribes and the council just said, don't preach in the name of Jesus anymore. It ended in a, in a warning. And Luke went on to tell us about how the church grew out of that persecution, and then, and then he brought in the second one of the trilogy. And the apostles are brought back before the council, this time not just two of them, but all of them. And the apostles are standing before the council, and this time it doesn't end in a warning. It ends in a beating. Do you remember that? They were beaten and told not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore. 
So now the third part of the trilogy, the the third of these persecutions in the church in Jerusalem before the story swings on this man Stephen and what happens to him. Here's the third. The first ended in a warning. The second ended in a beating. The third ends in a gruesome, gruesome death. I don't know if you ever thought about what it means to stone a man. I don't know if you've ever thought about what it would take to stone a man to death. It ends in a very, very gruesome way. But in it, we get a glimpse. If we pay attention, we get a glimpse, not only of what God was doing through Stephen, but what he was doing in Stephen. And in Stephen, representative in this local church. And look at what he says about Stephen, just in the very beginning. Stephen, a man full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, They said in Acts chapter 6, but then a man full of faith. He was recognized by his faith. He was a man in whom he was able to lean into with all that he had and all that he was and all that he hoped, leaned into the reality of the promises of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus and the certainty of Jesus and in what God had done for him through Jesus. He was a man who actually believed what Jesus had done. He was a man whose life was marked by a deep and abiding and sincere faith. He actually believed it to be true. And because he believed it to be true, he believed it changed everything about how he understood himself and the life he lived. Such to the degree that he could be characterized by this when people look back on him. And as we look at this real quick, I want you to think about yourself. Think about yourself in relation to the things that Stephen is characterized by. The fruit simply produced by the gospel digging deeper into his soul. He was a man of of great faith, and not only faith, but a man of great grace. Luke just continues to pile it on. Man of wisdom, yes. Man of faith, yes. A man of grace, yes. A man in whom an understanding and a growing appreciation and satisfaction and treasuring in the riches of God's grace was becoming a reality and evident in his life, but that word is is used in another way as well. In, In this sense, it's most likely relating to the fact that there was a winsomeness about Stephen. He wasn't a man that was just convinced in faith of the truth of the message of Jesus and then committed himself to going and beating it over the head, beating everybody with this message. There was a graciousness about Stephen. He was characterized by having a charm, a grace about him, a winsomeness about him. Would that be said of us? I don't think that's the general popular opinion of the church today. I don't think the world would characterize us as being a people full of grace. We talk a lot about here, around here about being a grace-driven people and continuing to explore what that means and how that impacts how we understand ourselves and the life that we live. Stephen was a man driven by grace, a man of deep faith, a, a man of great wisdom, a man of great wisdom and understanding, able to apply the understanding and knowledge that God had given him and the grace of just God's goodness to us and able to apply it to the circumstances around him. It's partly why he was chosen earlier on to go and help lead people in solving this crisis. It's an interesting guy. But mostly, most importantly, most often repeated about Stephen, he was a man in whom the Holy Spirit resided. All of those things, his faith, his graciousness, his wisdom, his power, performing signs and wonders amongst the people. Not just leading people to serve tables, This man was performing signs and wonders amongst the people. Same words used to describe Jesus back in Acts chapter 2. His wisdom, his power, his graciousness, his faith, they all came as the fruit of being empowered by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And here's the thing. 
just like Stephen, you and I share the same fullness of the Spirit. And we should expect the presence of the Spirit doing work in us as the gospel is taking root deeper and deeper into the soil of our souls. We should expect the same type of fruit to be evident in our lives. Stephen was no different than any of us. No different gospel, no different spirit. And so we have to ask ourselves as we just take a very brief, quick snapshot as we look at Stephen. What of us in all of these things? Where is the fruit of these things in our life? Could we be characterized not only in certain moments, but in our life of being a man or a woman of great faith, of great grace, of wisdom and power and effectiveness, recognizing that it comes from the presence of the Holy Spirit in us, continuing to work and to will for his good pleasure? What of us and what of you in all of these things? We don't have time to keep looking at Stephen. We could do a character study of Stephen all all day long, but we don't have time to look at Stephen. But Luke wants to show us these things. He wants us to see these things. He wants to see, to see what he had described to the church earlier, being resident in this one man as representative of the church. Here he is. He's no different. He's part of this local church. And here's what God's going to do in him and in him now through him in, in this city. And so Stephen is a Hellenist. He, he went to the Hellenist temple, the temple of the freedmen, the temple where the people who weren't by heritage Jewish would go and worship in Jerusalem. And he goes back to the temple And he begins to talk about the gospel to these people. It had become so deep and so abiding and so rich to his soul, he wanted the people whom he loved to hear this message. And so, because in great grace, don't think he's going back belittling people with this message. He was a man of winsomeness and grace and charm. He was going back to the people he loved and trying to help them see what had so radically captured his heart and his soul. And as he's doing this, they begin to rise up against him. And it's interesting to note, for those of you who are interested in this kind of thing, that synagogue or the temple of the freedmen there in Jerusalem, it's where a young man that we hear about later in the text would have worshipped, a man named Saul, a man who would later meet the resurrected Jesus and who would change his life and his name forever to be known as the Apostle Paul. He was in the synagogue where Stephen was going to share the gospel with the people he loved. Saul very likely heard Stephen, very likely debated with Stephen, very likely was one of these that raged against Stephen early on here, that brought this about. But that's just a tidbit for you. So, unable to refute him, unable to do battle with him, unable to confound him because of the wisdom with which he's speaking, because of the Holy Spirit's presence in his life and his heart, the people take to a different tactic, right? That they change their strategy. They begin now to to play dirty. Don't, Don't miss what they did. Look at verse 11. They secretly now, because they couldn't confound him, they secretly instigated other men who say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they didn't just get certain men to say those things. This is the first time so far in the book of Acts in persecution that not only have the scribes and the Pharisees or the leaders been incited, but now they're going to stir up the people. They're going to get everybody else involved. They're going to start playing really dirty with Stephen. In verse 12, they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came to him and they seized him and they brought him before the council and they set up a false witness that this man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, imagine that scene. Gazing at him, staring him down. They looked at him. His face like the face of an angel. The high priest says, is this, is this so? She so recognized Stephen's position here. He entered into their midst being brought 
false charges brought against him. He enters into their midst, not just the scribes, not just the Pharisees, but all the people now. And he's sitting in front of the council, sitting in front of the Sanhedrin. Imagine, he is already guilty until he's proven innocent. These are the same people who months ago tried falsely, convicted, and then crucified Jesus, bringing up some of the same charges against him. Stephen is now standing in front of them with some of the same charges being brought up against him. Don't miss, they, they've said four different things there, but they're really saying the same thing. Earlier on, they, they said that Stephen was speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God, and then it says that he never ceases to speak words against his holy place in the law. This, this the same thing, talking about the same thing. To the people, when you would speak about Moses, you would be speaking about the law. They had so venerated Moses in the life and traditions of Judaism and Israel that Moses was synonymous with the law. God gave Moses the law to give to the people. So speaking against Moses was like speaking against the law. And speaking against the temple, see, the temple had become this object of worship to the people, not a place of worship, but an object of worship, where they believed that the presence of God literally lived, literally dwelled. So to speak against the temple was blaspheming God. It was blaspheming against God. So what they're saying is that Stephen isn't just believing something different. He's blaspheming the majesty of God and the Holy One Moses who gave us God's sacred law. And they're bringing him in, and now they want to try to charge him. That's, that's what's going on. And in the presence of these people, you've got representatives of both of those claims. You've got the Pharisees, who are the keeper of the laws, and the Sadducees, who are the keepers of the temple. And Stephen's being charged with offending both of them and blaspheming both of them. So they're charging him, just to be clear. Let's make it simple, because now we're going to get to the meat of the text, and we're going to try to make it as simple as we can. What they're charging him with is speaking against, undermining, blaspheming the most sacred pillars of their religion. What had been objects in their religion became objects of their worship. What had been objects in their worship had now become objects of their worship. And Stephen was speaking against those things. He was blaspheming in their mind against those things. To put it in very colloquial terms, as you see on your bulletin, to these people, Stephen had gone cow-tipping. He was tipping over their most sacred cows, the things that mattered the most to them. Stephen had been on this, I'm pulling the Tennessee out of me. You can take me out of Tennessee, but you can't take Tennessee out of me. Stephen had gone sacred, cow-tipping. And this had enraged them. And so they've brought him up against the council and charges of undermining what had become most significant to them and their religion. So how did he do it? Because he's not done. He's not done. He had only gotten started. Now, we're going to get to the middle of the text, and we're going to go big, and we're going to go fast, because we could get stuck in here forever. So we're going to see how Stephen has done what he has done. And I want you to note, though, this is the longest recorded speech in the book of Acts. Not Peter, not Paul, Stephen. There's something about what Stephen was getting after in this speech that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke wants us to pay much attention to. And it's not just because Stephen does such a great job of walking us through the Old Testament, as we'll see. There's something essential when it all comes together that Luke wanted us to see. So the longest recorded speech in Acts is Stephen's. Interesting. And I'm going to resist the temptation to dwell on the trees. I'm going to try to hit the forest. So let's see what he does. Acts chapter 7, verse 2. We'll start in verse 1. The high priest said, Are these things so? Have you been doing this? Have you been blaspheming the things that 
we hold so sacred. And Stephen is going to tip the sacred cow, number one, the land. Brothers and fathers, hear me. Now he's going to put the central actor on the stage. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. He's going back to Genesis. When he was in, say it, Mesopotamia, before he lived in Iran. And he said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go to the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and he lived in Iran. And after his father died, God removed him from there and into this land in which you're now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance of it, not even a foot's length. But he promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. So we're going back to the story of God's promise to Abraham in the beginning of Genesis. And I want you to take special note as we read this big section of the places that Luke records. And God spoke. So now the glorious God, the majesty of God, the God of glory has appeared again. And now he's speaking. And he spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others. It wasn't even their land. They're going to be another land who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant, gave them him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. We're going through Genesis. Sound familiar? All right, stay with me. Verse nine, the patriarchs, the brothers, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him. So now we're in Egypt and God's there. And he rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and all of his household. And now there came a famine throughout all of Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent, out of our, fa- he sent our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob and his father and all of his kindred, 75 people in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, And he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in a tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. Not a land was given to him. All he had was a tomb. Verse 17. But as the time of promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who didn't know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born. We're going to keep going. Now we're into Exodus. Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. Where did he live? Egypt. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the the children of Israel, Seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and he avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they didn't get it. And on the following day, he appeared to them and they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you're brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? And at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of... Now we're in Midian, where he became the father of two sons. So now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai 
and a flame of fire and a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at his sight, and he drew near to look, and there came the voice of the Lord. Now, who's speaking? The Lord's speaking. Where is he? All right. I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing, not in Israel, the place where you are standing right now, where I'm speaking in present, is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their groaning, and I've come down to deliver them, and now I come, and I will send you to Egypt. What is the point that Stephen is trying to make here? I mean, what, what, what is the point of what Stephen is trying to say? They've asked him a question. Have you been doing and saying the very things that you're being accused of? And this is how he begins to respond. What's the point of what he's saying? He's saying that God does not need a particular land to bless his people. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're believing. I know what's come. I'm with you. I've been there. I was in the temple with you just a matter of weeks ago. I know. But God does not need a particular land to bless his people. He, He never has. In the very beginning, God spoke to Abraham where? Mesopotamia. Took him out of his land. Where? Haran. From there, he blessed Joseph. Where? In Egypt. He took care of the patriarchs, the forefathers. Where? In Egypt. God gave them a deliverer. Where? In Egypt. Through who? Moses. Moses left Egypt and God spoke to him where? The wilderness. Spoke to him where? Sinai. Calling the very land he was standing on holy ground. And from there, through Moses, he went on to meet with his people, perform signs and wonders in Egypt, in the parting of the Red Sea, and throughout the wilderness as he led them and guided them. God does not need a particular land to bless his people. That's what he's, he's trying to get across to them. You've hold, held this thing so sacred. You've made your right and your comfort and your security before God himself around an idea that God has got this land and he's put you in it, therefore you're right. He's never needed it. He spoke to his people before he gave it to you and he'll speak to them after it. He doesn't need it. God gave his people everything they needed for the pure worship of him before they ever had a tabernacle, a temple, or a home. That's what Stephen is trying to say. And if we did a point, a sermon on each of these points, I would deal with those of you who have particular ideas about a Christian America and the idea of who we are and should be for whatever God needs to bless the earth. He's never needed us. He'll do it without us. We don't have time for that. That's just the first sacred cow. He's going to get another one. Verse 35, he goes from their land to their leaders in the law. Now, now we're getting down. Now, you were accused of blaspheming Moses in the law. Now, listen to what he's going to say. Now, verse 35, I love how he says it. I can't wait to be in heaven one day and literally let God just show me how this happened. If I could imitate his voice, I would. Verse 35, listen to him. This Moses, now you're, you're accusing me of blaspheming Moses? This Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and judge? This man that God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of an angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received the living oracles to give to us. He's talking about the law. Our fathers refused to obey him. 
They thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. And for this Moses, who led us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. That's what they were saying. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their own hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the hosts of the heavens. As it was written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices? During the 40 years in the wilderness of the house of Israel, no, you took up the tent of Molech and the star of your god, Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile in Babylon. So remember the charge. You're blaspheming Moses. You're blaspheming our leader. You're blaspheming the law. And here's what Stephen's saying. Sure, Moses is great. Stephen hasn't spoken against the land yet, and he hasn't spoken against Moses. Moses was great. Moses was a great leader. Moses led us out of slavery. God used him. He was a redeemer sent by God to be used by God to redeem us from slavery. Yes, Moses met with God, and God gave him the living oracles and gave him the living law. Yes, God used him to perform wonders, signs and wonders in our forefathers' midst, in the wilderness, leading us where God would take us. But nobody ever followed him. Nobody ever believed him. Moses and the law were not enough to get anybody to obey God. Our own forefathers didn't do it. Now he's starting to, hopefully you're catching the undertone of what he's saying here. He's not directly saying anything to them, but they're starting to get the idea of what he's getting after. Our own forefathers didn't listen to him. As great as he was, the people never listened. They pushed him aside, Stephen said, and they worshipped a calf. He gave them the law. He met with God. You want to charge me against blasphemy Moses? Our own people never listened to him. They never even listened to the law. It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. But Moses himself said something really important. He said, God's going to raise up. (laughs) He's going to raise up another. Moses and the law, they were just pointing us somewhere. They were never the point. They were never the end. They were all trying to direct us somewhere. They never had the power to make people obey. They were constantly rejected constantly pushed away. So he's undercutting this sacred cow here, helping them to see the reality of what's going on, all the pomp they had built around these things. What had been part of their worship had become idols of their worship. And Stephen is very carefully just tipping them over and he's going to go after a third one here. There's another accusation. I wish we had time for all of them. Sacred cow number three. He's going to the temple. We've got to keep going. Verse 44. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness. And just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, just as the prophet says, who you guys know, you guys read, you guys are scholars of the law, you know this. The prophet even said this, heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? What is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all of these things? Listen to Stephen's tone. Seriously. Listen. You almost want to seem like looking at the scribes and the rulers. Seriously. He spoke to us in the wilderness. He spoke to Abe looking at the stars. Spoke to Moses in a bush. Spoke to Moses on a mountain spoke to us while we were wandering through the desert. Does he really need a house? Come on. Seriously. 
does God really need for us to build him a place where he can live so that we can interact with him so that he could speak to us? He's never needed it before. Before there was even a portable tent predating the temple, God spoke to his people. God met with us. God led us. God directed us. We had everything we always needed. And then when God finally allowed Solomon to actually build him a temple, Solomon's great temple, it was as if God let them enjoy that for about half a second before God spoke against it. You know that? They built it. And before they could ever make it, what these men had now made it, God spoke against it saying, listen, I don't dwell in houses made by hands. Now before you get the wrong idea, you've built this great big thing. I don't live in there. I don't dwell in houses made by hands. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. What will you actually build for me? What's the place of my rest? Listen, this is just asking for common sense. Did I not make all these things? What had happened is over the years, they had taken that temple. And where God would, would come in the Holy of Holies in the deepest parts of that temple and meet with the high priest at one time of a year, over the years in the traditions of Israel, the temple had become venerated. It had become the place where God lived and God dwelt and God's glory resided. They had forgotten what God himself said the very first time they built this thing. And Stephen's just saying, listen, I'm not blasphemy, just common sense, brothers. Common sense, don't your own prophets say this. He doesn't need a place to crash. He never has. Don't kid ourselves. So what's the point of his sermon So before we get stuck in the trees? What's, what's the point? Why, why of all the sermons in Acts does this one get so much real estate? Of all the things Paul's going to say and Peter's going to say. What's so important here? See, Stephen was speaking directly to the most structural foundations of the religion that had developed amongst God's people. Stephen was dealing with the pillars that were propping up his people's sense of security and hope and trust and assurance before God. Stephen's saying all those things, great things. God gave you the land. God let you build a temple. God gave you Moses and he gave you leaders. He gave you prophets, all good things that God's given you, but they're not the end thing. They're not the best thing. They're not the ultimate thing. You have made the good things that God has given you. You've made them the ultimate things that God of God's worship, and now you've displaced God. Just as Ray was talking about last week, if you go back and listen to it, a people, a church, a, a group, a soul begins to slowly go astray as soon as anything other than Jesus is taken out of the center, off his throne, and replaced with something else. And in the life of God's people, Israel, through the centuries, they had taken what God had given them to point them to him and what he would do in them, and they had put that at the center, and they had made that the objects of their worship. And Stephen's just saying, common sense, brothers. It's not the main thing. Good things made main things become devastating things. Stephen's just pushing them over, one at a time. The land that God gave, the leaders that God gave, the law that God gave, the temple, they don't make you right with God. Love Moses all you want. Obey all the rules the best you can. Get to temple as often as you're supposed to. It doesn't make you right with God. It was never intended to. It was all intended to prepare you and point you to the one who would. This is what Stephen's trying to get over. The only thing that could save them 
and conversely, we'll see in a minute, that could save us, was the one in whom they directed our attention, the person and work of Jesus, in whom the righteous one, Stephen will say, that they betrayed and murdered. This is what Stephen is trying to say. What you're trusting in for your assurance, for your sense of right standing before God, for your hope, for your day in and day out peace before God, it's going to fail you. He's saying all those things, good, they're going to fail you. Look back at our fathers who you love so much. Look back, it's going to fail you. They can never give you what it is you think they can. And so with Stephen, we have to ask ourselves, what what are our sacred cows? I mean, what are the things that we hold so near and dear in our hearts that we derive some sense of confidence and assurance and hope and security before God? Think about this. Ask yourself this when you get a chance. What, What are you placing your hope in? I mean, why do you think that God accepts you? If you, that's what I was trying to, if you felt free to sing and, and to worship God this morning when we began, ask yourself on what basis you felt free. What, why did you feel free to do that? What's given you that kind of confidence? Is it something that you've done or said? Something you consistently do or say? Is it the time you give to do good things for other people? Is it the pattern of discipline that you've put into your life to reflect a particular outcome you want to see happen? What is it? It could be any number of things. I could spend two hours naming all those things. You've got to deal with yourself. What gives you confidence of your standing before God? What's your sacred cow? Because you see, when it comes to taking away your sin and giving you confidence before God and righteousness before God, reconciling you to God, all of those things, including perfect obedience, is nothing. It can't do it. They can't save you. The only thing that can is faith in the person and work of Jesus. All of those things ultimately become nothing. So Stephen would look up and say, all of your Bible reading and all of your serving the poor and all of your serving the homeless and all of your church attendance and all of your community attendance and all those things you do. Listen, They're nothing. They can't save you. Good things. Good things used in the hands of a Holy Spirit for the cultivation of the soul, for the deepening roots of the gospel. Good things. Main things, they'll destroy you. Main things, they will destroy you. At worst, they'll give you a false sense of hope and security. At worst, you'll think that everything is okay. Right standing before God and confidence and acceptance before God and assurance of hope and mercy only come through faith in the person and work of Jesus. Stephen's not done. He's going to have to bring it home. I've got to bring it home too. You all right? You comfortable? I'm all right. Our kids are safe. Don't worry. Stephen's going to bring it home. Here we go. He's not done. Now they've got to respond. Now they've got to respond. Verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. This is Old Testament condemnation. You always resist the Holy Spirit, just as your fathers did, so do you. Listen, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Which of the leaders that God gave you that you venerate did your fathers not kill? Seriously. Which are the ones that not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. 
They were the ones telling our forefathers of the one who was to come, of God's promise, of God's fulfillment, of the person that all of these things were pointing to. They were the ones proclaiming it, and our forefathers killed them. And of this righteous one, whom you've now betrayed and murdered. Months ago, same counsel. Falsely found Jesus guilty of these same charges. Had him crucified. These people, not a different group of people, these people stood, stared Jesus dead in the eye months ago. Stephen is not holding back now. Of this righteous one whom you betrayed. God sent him to you. He served you. You betrayed him. You turned against your own man. And you had him murdered. You who received the law as given by angels. You who received the law as given by angels. And you don't even keep it. What you get here is a tale of two very different responses. And what you see when you begin to, to look at it as a whole is that Stephen wasn't the one on trial. Stephen wasn't the one standing there on trial. It was the council and the religion of the people that were on trial. And it wasn't Stephen that was judging them, it was the gospel that was judging them. Stephen had done nothing but proclaim the good news of the person and work of Jesus. He had done it with grace and a winsome spirit. What they were responding to and what they were angry about was not Stephen the person, it was the message that he was speaking And what you've seen through this whole sermon and now what you'll see in the response is that the gospel is what's bringing the judgment. It wasn't Stephen that was out tipping over their cows. It was the gospel. And when the gospel stays central and the gospel is proclaimed, it's the gospel that tips over your cows. It's not me. It's not Ray. It's not Chris. It's not anybody else. It's the gospel. Stephen could do nothing but express his joy and his hope and his security that's come from what Jesus has done. And it stuck a knife in the heart of everything that they held dear. It was Jesus that their people are responding to now. Don't miss this. When you see their response, they're not responding to Stephen. They're responding to Jesus. They're responding to the message of the gospel. This sermon has exposed their hearts. It's brilliant. And it's exposed all of our hearts if we're really honest. I mean, aren't we guilty of the same condemnation of them? I mean, aren't we guilty of ignoring the law of God and paying lip service to the word of God and In some sense, don't we all deserve God's justice? Don't we deserve in and of ourselves for God to turn us over to our own sin just as he did the people of Israel at times? Turn them over to their own gods of their own making and let them try to get from them what they want and what they thought they would deliver. We're no different than these people. But like them, we, we still, I don't want you to miss this in the sermon, we're still recipients of God's patience. I mean, if you get anything as you read that story and go back and read it this week, that sermon, think of the patience of God with his people over and over and over and over and over again. God demonstrating his patience and his long-suffering towards his people, giving them again, time after time after time, a chance to repent and to turn. Same thing's happening here. He's giving them a chance. Stephen is proclaiming the grace of God, the goodness of God, and they've got in God's great patience, a chance to respond. Here's what happens. Look at verse 54. We've read it already. When they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened 
the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. See, there's two different responses here to the gospel. Stephen's responding to the gospel, and the council is responding to the gospel. Like I said, they're not responding to Stephen. They're responding to Jesus. And the issue at hand, when we read this, when we think about this, when we have to deal with this, is what is your response? What is your reaction? What is our reaction to the gospel? What is our reaction to Jesus? When you hear, like this council heard, that you fall short of the glory of God and the righteousness of God, when you fall short of the very law that you venerate, the very word that you hold sacred, when you fall short, and I don't have in yourself the capacity to please God in such a way. How do you respond? Counsel. Stuck their fingers in their ears. Ground their teeth. So the gospel was exposing the hollowness of what it was they believed in. Instead of turning to God through Jesus in faith, they rushed his man in rage, wanting to hold so tight to those things they were so convinced that they could control and could use to get what they wanted. They could control the law. They could control the temple. They could control the stories of their leaders and their forefathers. And those things they could put together to give them what they wanted. At the threat of losing control of those things, they became enraged. And they rushed him. They took him out of the city. And before a man would be stoned, they would strip him naked. They would lay those garments at the feet of a witness. And this witness was Saul. And they proceeded to stone him. What you would hear was the screaming and the agony of a man as rocks would pelt against his skin and his bones would break. And you'd hear the screaming and the rage and the anger of a crowd wanting so desperately for it to be done. Wanting so desperately to silence the thing that had brought them so much how do you respond? You're dealing with Jesus. You're not dealing with me. How do you respond to the gospel? How do you respond to Jesus? Stephen, his response? Huh. He was a man full of faith. Full of faith, Luke had already told us. In this moment, his response to this crowd was born out of his response to Jesus already in the gospel. Man, full of faith, he stands in God in his mercy and grace gives him a picture and he gets a chance to see into the heavens and in that moment what he sees is not Jesus seated at the right hand of God always in the Bible a picture of God's rule and God's reign what he sees now is Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father always a picture of Jesus interceding on behalf of his saints Stephen's response to the gospel through faith produced in him a confidence that Jesus ever lived to intercede and make intercession before God on his behalf. That confidence, that assurance is what gave him the capacity to do what he did and to die the way he did. 
Stephen's response to Jesus, Stephen's response to the gospel is what produced in him the life he lived and the death that he died. And I think as I was reading this, thinking about how to end this, and I wrestled with the reality that very few of us, including myself, ever live a day consistently with the kind of peace that Peter faced his death in. I mean, Peter faced the most gruesome death with an unbelievable peace because in his soul, he had a faith in believing what God had done for him through Jesus. Most of us can't get through a day without being absolutely tossed to and fro, insecure, worrisome, uncertain of what God thinks about us, what God is going to say about us. When we face that same day that Stephen faced, and we can't get through a single day without being wrecked by worry, how are we going to stand before a holy God in the day of our death with the kind of peace that Stephen did? Here's what I came up with, and here's how it went. What we need on the day that we stand before God, it's not our best efforts. It's not any kind of confidence or assurance in the law, in the land, in the leaders, in the temple, or whatever your cow is. What we need is not confidence in those things, but to see Jesus at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, testifying for us that his righteousness has been credited to our account. That is the only thing that will produce in our hearts the type of resolve that we see produced in Stephen's heart, not just in the way he died, but the way he lived. If we had that kind of confidence, we would not only be able to die the way Stephen died, but we'd be able to live the way Stephen lived. His eyes were firmly fixed on the gospel, on the person and work of Jesus, and he knew, he knew in the face of that counsel that the real judge that he was to worry about facing, ultimately wouldn't condemn him, but would welcome him. That's the kind of confidence that we need to have, to not only face what Stephen faced the way he did, but to live the way that Stephen lived. Because our fear, our insecurity, our, 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 our lack of assurance, all of those things come because we've given the authority to judge us over to other people, people's opinions, other circumstances, and other things. We've given the only authority that belongs to God over to other people and things to judge us. They might have the power to mess with our heads. Might have the power to fire us from our jobs. Might have the power to take our stuff. But they do not have the power to judge or condemn us eternally. The only one who reserves that right is God. So, what was God doing? not only through this man, but in this man. In this man, the gospel, as it began to take deep and abiding root in his soul, produced in him a confidence and a resolve that the bore the fruit of a witness, a declared to a watching and dying world of the certainty of the mercy and the joy and the patience of God. So you gotta ask yourself, 
Here's the question I ask myself, and we'll just end here. What's your attitude to Jesus? What's your response to the gospel? I mean, that's ultimately what matters. Not your response to the church. Not your response to the culture. What's your response to the gospel? What do you hear? What do you feel when you see that you fall short and your only hope of acceptance is Jesus, his life and his death given to you as a free gift? What's your response? Are you thankful? Are you stiff-necked and stubborn? Let me pray for you.